Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. As we reach beyond the veil to Christmas past, as the spirits tell us the story of the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens.
The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, went down a slide on Cornhill at the end of the lane of boys twenty times in honor of its being Christmas Eve. And then he ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play at blind man's buff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms, in a lowering pile of building up a yard, where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house, playing hide-and-seek with other houses, and have forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now, and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed that the genius of the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now it is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It also is a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. Also that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London, even including, which is a bold word, the corporation, alderman, and livery. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner that afternoon. And then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any um, intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face! It was not an impenetrable shadow, as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred as if by breath or hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid color, made it horrible." but its horror seemed to be in spite of the face and beyond its control, rather than a part of its expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled or that his blood was not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause with a moment's irresolution before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first. 
as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So he said, <laughs> and closed it with a bang. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Every room above and every cask in the wine merchant's cellar below appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs, slowly, too, trimming his candle as he went. You may talk vaguely about driving a coach and six up a good old flight of stairs as through a bad young act of Parliament. But I mean to say that you might have got a hearse up that staircase and taken it broadwise with a splinter bar towards the wall and the doors toward the balustrade and done it easily. There was plenty of width for that and room to spare, which is perhaps the reason why Scrooge thought he saw a locomotive hearse going on before him in the gloom. Half a dozen gas lamps out of the street wouldn't have lighted the entry too well. So you may suppose that it was pretty dark with Scrooge's dip. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for that. Darkness is cheap and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room, all as they should be. Nobody under the table nobody under the sofa, a small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and the little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a cold in his head upon the hob. Nobody under the bed, nobody in the closet. Nobody in his dressing gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Lumber room as usual, Old fire guard, old shoes, two fish baskets, washing stand on three legs, and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed the door and locked himself in. Double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers, and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing such as bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago, and paved all around with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were canes and abels, Pharaoh's daughters, queens of Sheba, angelic messengers, descending through the air upon the clouds like featherbeds. Abraham's, Balthazar's, apostles putting off to sea and in butter boats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts. And yet, that face of Marley, seven years dead, came like the ancient prophet's rod and swallowed up the whole. If each smooth tile had been blank at first, with power to shape some picture on its surface from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts, there would have been a copy of old Marley's head on every one. Now, oh, humbug, said Scrooge and walked across the room. 
After several turns, he sat down again. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell. A disused bell that hung in the room and communicated, for some purpose now forgotten, with a chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that he, as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly. And so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below if if some person were dragging a heavy chain. Over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound. Much. Marley's voice, no doubt about it. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? Said Scrooge, raising his voice. You're particular for a shade. He was going to say to a shade, but substituted this as more appropriate. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you, can you sit down? Asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it, then. Scrooge asked the question, because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if it were quite used to it. You don't believe in me observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your own senses? Don't know, said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You may be an undigested bit of beef. A blot of mustard or a crumb of cheese. A fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish then. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror. For the specter's voice disturbed the very marrow in his bones to sit staring at those fixed, glazed eyes in silence. For a moment, would play, Scrooge felt, the very deuce with him. 
There was something very awful, too, in that specter's being provided with an infernal atmosphere of his own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but this was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated as by the hot vapor from an oven. You see this toothpick, said Scrooge, returning quickly to the charge for the reason just assigned, and wishing, though it were only for a second, to divert the vision's stony gaze from himself. I do, replied the ghost. You are not looking at it, said Scrooge, but I see it notwithstanding. Well, returned Scrooge, I have to swallow this and be the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. At this point, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chains with such a dismal and appalling noise. that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage round his head as if it were to warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy! he said, dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? replied the ghost. I do, said Scrooge, I must, but why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me! And witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Again the specter raised a cry, and shook its chains and wrung its shadowy hands. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link, and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since... It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. Jacob, he 
implored. Old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give. It comes from other regions. Ebenezer Scrooge and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money, changing whole, and weary journeys lie before me. It was a habit with Scrooge, whenever he became thoughtful, to put his hands in his breeches' pockets. Pondering on what the ghost had said, he did so now, but without lifting up his eyes or getting off his knees. "'You must be very slow about it, Jacob!' Scrooge observed in a businesslike manner, though with humility and deference. Slow, Ghost repeated. Seven years dead, mused Scrooge, and traveling all this time? The whole time, no rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. Travel fast, said Scrooge. On the wings of the wind. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years, said Scrooge. The ghost, on hearing this, set up another cry and clanked its chain so hideously in the dead silence of the night, and the ward would have been justified in indicting it for a nuisance. Oh! Captive, bound, and double-ironed, not to know that ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures, for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is susceptible is all developed, not to know that any Christian spirit, working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunities misused. Yet such was I. Oh, such was I. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge who now began to apply this to himself. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. It held up its chains at arm's length, as if that were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground. At this time of the rolling year, I suffer most. 
Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down, and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? Scrooge was very much dismayed to hear the spectre going on at this rate, and began to quake in exceeding fear. Hear me, my time is nearly gone. I will, said Scrooge, but don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob. Pray. How it is that I appear before you in a shape that you can see, I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. It was not an agreeable idea. Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. That is no light part of my penance. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. You are always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank ye. You will be haunted by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghosts had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in a faltering voice. It is. I... I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, the third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. He ventured to raise his eyes again and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in an attitude with its chain wound over about its arm. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped. Not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand, he became sensible of confused noises in the air. Incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and accusatory, the spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms wandering hither and thither in restless haste, 
and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghosts. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat, with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clear, and they sought to interfere for good in human matters, and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double locked, as he had locked it with his own two hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say, Hump! but stopped at the first syllable. And being, from the emotions he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, went straight to bed without undressing, and fell asleep upon an instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of the bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. The heavy bell struck twelve, then stopped. Twelve? It was past two when he went to bed. The clock was wrong, and an icicle must have gotten into the works. Twelve? He touched the spring of his repeater to correct this most preposterous clock. Its rapid little pulse beat twelve and stopped. Why, it isn't possible, said Scrooge, that I can't have slept through a whole day and far into another night. It isn't possible that anything has happened to the sun, and this is twelve noon. The idea being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off with his sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything, and he could see very little. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold, and that there was no noise of people running to and fro and making a great stir, as there were unquestionably would have been if night had been beaten off by bright day and taken possession of the world. This was a great relief, because... Three days after sight of this first of exchange pay to Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge or his order, and so forth, would have become a mere United States security if there were no days to count by. Scrooge went to bed again, and thought and thought, and thought it over and over, and could make nothing of it. 
The more he thought, the more perplexed he was, and the more he endeavored not to think, the more he thought. Marley's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after mature inquiry, that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again, like a strong spring released to its first position and presented the same problem to be worked out all again. Was it a dream or not? Scrooge lay in this state until the chime had gone three quarters more, and when he remembered on a sudden that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one, he resolved to lie awake until the hour was past. And considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. The quarter was so long that he was once more convinced he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously and missed the clock. At length, it broke upon its listening ear. The hour itself, said Scrooge. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which now it did with a deep, dull, hollow, and melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by a hand. Not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge started up in a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them. As close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet were most delicately formed, were like those upper members bare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and a singular contradiction of that wintry emblem had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprang a bright clear jet of light, by which all this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cap, which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality. For, as its belt sparkled and glittered, now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant and another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now with a pair of legs, without a head, without a body, of which dissolving parts no outline would be 
visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And, in the very wonder of this, it would itself again, distinct and clear as ever. "'Are you the spirit, sir, who is coming, was foretold to me?' asked Scrooge. "'I am.' Voice was soft and gentle, singularly low, as if, instead of being so close behind him, it were at a distance. "'Who are you, and what are you?' Scrooge demanded. "'I am the ghost of Christmas past.' "'Long past?' Scrooge inquired, observant of its dwarfish nature. "'No, your past.' Perhaps Scrooge could not have told anybody why, if anybody could have asked him, but he had a special desire to see the spirit in his cap and begged him to be covered. What? Would you soon so put out with worldly hands the light I give? Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this cap? and force me through whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow? Scrooge reverently disclaimed all intention to offend or any knowledge of having willfully bonneted the spirit at any period of his life. He then made bold to inquire what business brought him there. Your welfare. Scrooge expressed himself much obliged, but could not help think that a night of unbroken rest would have been more conducive to that end. The spirit must have heard him thinking, for it said immediately, Your reclamation, then. Take heed. Put out its strong hand as it spoke, and clasped him gently by the arm. Rise and walk with me would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead that the weather or the hour were not adapted to pedestrian purposes, that bed was warm and the thermometer a long way below freezing, that he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing gown, and nightcap, and that he had a cold upon him at the time. The grasp, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window clasped its robe in supplication. I am a mortal, Scrooge cried, and liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand there, and you shall be held in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. Not a vestige of it was to be seen. The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, for it was a clear, cold winter day with the snow upon the ground. "'Good heaven!' said Scrooge, clasping his hands together as he looked about him. "'I was bred in this place. I was a boy here.' The spirit gazed upon him mildly. Its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each one connected with thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Your lip is trembling. And what is that upon your cheek? Scrooge muttered with an unusual catching in his voice that it was a pimple and begged the ghost to lead him where he would. Recollect the way? Remember it? 
cried Scrooge with fervor. I could walk it blindfolded. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years. Let us go on. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree, until a little market town appeared in the distance, with its bridge, its church, and winding river. Some shaggy ponies now were trotting towards them with boys upon their backs who called to the other boys in country gigs and carts driven by farmers. All these boys were in great spirits and shouted to each other until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. These are but shadows of the things that have been. They have no consciousness of us. Travelers came on, and as they came, Scrooge knew and named them every one. Why was he rejoiced beyond all bounds to see them? Why did his cold eye glisten and his heart leap up as they went past? Why was he filled with gladness when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas as they parted at crossroads and byways for their several homes? What was Merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas! What good had it ever done him? The school is not quite deserted. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. Scrooge said he knew it, and he sobbed. They left the high road by a well-remembered lane and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick, with a little weathercock surmounted copla on the roof, and a bell hanging in it. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used. Their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken, and their gates decayed. Fowls clucked and strutted in the stables, and the coach houses and sheds were overrun with grass. Nor was it more retentive of its ancient state within. For, entering the dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms, they found them poorly furnished, cold, and vast. There was an earthly savor in the air, a chilly bareness in the place, which associated itself somehow with too much getting up the candlelight and not too much to eat. They went, the ghost and Scrooge, across the hall to a door at the back of the house. It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room, made barer still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form, and wept to see his poor, forgotten self as he had used to be. Not a latent echo in the house, not a squeak and scuffle from the mice behind the paneling, not a drip from the half-thawed water-spout in the dull yard behind. Not a sigh among the leafless boughs of one despondent poplar. Not the idle swinging of an empty storehouse door. No, not a clicking in the fire, but fell upon the heart of Scrooge with softening influence and gave a freer passage to his tears. The spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self, intent upon his reading. Suddenly, a man in foreign garments, wonderfully real and distinct to look at, stood outside the window, with an axe stuck in his belt, and leading by the bridle an ass laden with wood. "'Why, it's Alibaba!' Scrooge exclaimed in ecstasy. "'It's dear, old, honest Alibaba! 
Yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time, when yonder solitary child was left here all alone, he did come. For the first time, just like that. Poor boy. And Valentine, said Scrooge, and his wild brother Orson, there they go. And what's his name, who was put down in drawers asleep at the gate of Damascus, don't you see him? And the sultan's groom turned upside down by the genie, there he was upon his head. Serve him right, I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? To hear Scrooge expending all the earnestness of his nature on sub subjects in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, and to see his heightened and excited face, would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city indeed. There's the parrot, cried Scrooge, green body and yellow tail with a thing like a lettuce growing out of the top of his head. There he is. Oh, poor Robinson Crusoe. He called him when he came home again after sailing around the island. Poor Robin Crusoe, where have you been, Robin Crusoe? The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday running for his life to the little creek. Hola, hoopaloo! Then, with a rapidity of transition, very foreign to his usual character, he said in pity for his former self, Poor boy, and cried again. I wish, Scrooge muttered, putting his hand in his pocket and looking about him after drying his eyes with his cuff. But it's too late. What is the matter? Nothing, said Scrooge, nothing. There was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given him something, that's all. The ghost smiled thoughtfully and waved its hand, saying as it did so. Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, and the room became a little darker and more dirty. The panels shrunk. Windows cracked. Fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling, and naked lays were shown instead. But how all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you do. He only knew that it was quite correct, that everything had happened so, that there he was, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in and putting her arms about his neck and often kissing him, addressed him as her dear, dear brother. "'I have come to bring you home, dear brother,' said the child, clapping her tiny hands and bending down to laugh, to bring you home, home, home. Home, little fan, returned the boy. Yes, said the child, brimful of glee. Home for good and all, home forever and ever. Father's so much kinder than he used to be. That's home like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one night. I was going to bed that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said, yes, you should, and sent me in a coach to bring you. And you're to be a man, said the child, opening her eyes, and, and are never coming back here. But first we're to be together all Christmas.
Christmas long and have the merriest time in all the world. You are quite a woman, little fan, exclaimed the boy. She clapped her hands and laughed and tried to touch his head, but being too little, laughed again and stood on tiptoe to embrace him. Then she began to drag him in her childish eagerness towards the door, and he, nothing loath to go, accompanied her. A terrible voice in the hall cried, Bring down Master Scrooge's box there. And in the hall appeared the schoolmaster himself, who glared at Master Scrooge with a ferocious condescension and threw him into a dreadful state of mind by shaking hands with him. He then conveyed him and his sister into the veriest old well of a shivering best parlor that was ever seen, where the maps upon the wall and the celestial and terrestrial globes in the windows were waxy with cold. Here he produced a decanter of curiously light wine and a block of curiously heavy cake and administered installments of these dainties to the young people, at the same time sending out a meager servant to offer a glass of something to the postboy, who answered that he thanked the gentleman. But if it was the same tap as he had tasted before, he had rather not. Master Scrooge's trunk, being by this time tied on to the top of the chaise, and the children bade the schoolmaster goodbye right willingly, and getting into it, drove gaily down the garden sweep, and quick wheels dashing the hoarfrost and snow from off the dark leaves of the evergreen spray. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered, but she had a large heart. Dad, cried Scrooge, you're right. I will not gainsay it, spirit, God forbid. She died a woman, and had, as I think, children. One child, Scrooge returned. True, your nephew. Scrooge seemed uneasy in his mind and answered briefly, yes. Although they had but that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here, too, it was Christmas time again. But it was evening, and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. "'Know it?' said Scrooge. I was apprenticed here. They went in, and at sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig sitting behind such a high desk that if he made two inches taller, he must have knocked his head against the ceiling. Scrooge cried in excitement. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, laughed all over himself from his shoes to his organ of benevolence, and called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jovial voice. Yo-ho there, Ebenezer! Dirk! Scrooge's former self, now a grown young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow prentice. Dick Wilkins, to be sure! said Scrooge to the ghost. Bless me, yes, there he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dick. Poor Dick, poor dear. Yo-ho, my boys, said Fezziwig. No more work tonight. 
Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Let's have the shutters up, cried old Fezziwick with a sharp clap of his hand. Before a man can say Jack Robinson. You wouldn't believe how those two fellows went at it. They charged into the street with the shutters. One, two, three, had them up in their places. Four, five, six, bared them and penned them. Seven, eight, nine, and came back before you could have got twelve panting like a racehorse. Hilly-ho, cried old Fezziwig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hilly-ho, Dick, chirp, Ebenezer. Clear away, there was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away, or couldn't have cleared away, with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. The floor was swept and watered, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and bright as a ballroom as you could desire to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk. In came Mrs. Fezziwig and the Miss Fezziwigs. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling. And in they all came, anyhow and everyhow. Away they all went, twenty couples at Hands half round and back again the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping. Old top couples always turning up in the wrong place, new top couples starting off again as they got there. All top couples at last and not a bottom one to help them. When this result was brought about, old Fezziwig, clapping his hands to stop the dance, cried out, Well done! and the fiddler plunged his hot face into a pot of porter, especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappearance, he instantly began to play again. Though there were no dancers yet, as if the other fiddler had been carried home exhausted on a shutter, and he were a brand new man resolved to beat him out of sight or perish. There were more dances, and there were forfeits, and more dances, and there was cake, and a great piece of cold roast. There was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled, when the fiddler, an artful dog mind, the sort of man who knew his business better than you or I could have told it to him, struck up Sir Roger Coverley. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Miss Fezziwig. Top couple, too, with a good stiff piece of work cut out for them. Three or four and twenty pairs of partners, people who were not to be trifled with. People who would dance and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many, ah, oh, four times, old Fezziwig would have been a match for them. And so would Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her, she was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. If that's not high praise, tell me higher and I'll use it. 
a positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. You couldn't have predicted at any given time what would become of them next. And when old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig had gone through the dance, advance and retire, both hands to your partner, bow and curtsy, corkscrew, thread the needle and back again to your place, Fezziwig cut so deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs and came upon his feet again without a stagger. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, and on either side of the door and shaking hands with every person individually, as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two apprentices, they did the same to them. And thus the cheerful voices died away, and the lads were left to their beds, which were under a counter in the back of the shop. During the whole of this, Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene and with his former self. He cooperated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now, when the bright faces of his former self and Dick were turned from them, that he remembered the ghost and became conscious that it was looking full upon him, with the light upon its head burnt very clear. A small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small, echoed Scrooge. The spirit signed to him to listen to the two apprentices, who were pouring out their hearts in praise of Fezziwig, and when he had done so, said, Why, is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, said Scrooge, heated by the remark and speaking unconsciously like his former, not his latter self. It isn't that, spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in his words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count him up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. He felt the spirit's glance and stopped. What is the matter? Nothing particular, said Scrooge. Something, I think. No, said Scrooge. No, I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now. That's all. His former self turned down the lamps as he gave an utterance to the wish, and Scrooge and the ghost stood side by side in the open air. My time grows short. Quick! This was not addressed to Scrooge or to anyone whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect, for again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life. His face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye, which showed the passion that had taken root, and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone, but sat side by side with a fair young girl in a morning dress, in whose eyes there were tears, which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little, she said softly, to you very little. Another idol has displaced me, and, if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, 
I know no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? he rejoined. A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world, he said. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your noble aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion gain engrosses you. Have I not? What then? he retorted. Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you. She shook her head. Am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until in good season we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy, he said impatiently. Your own feeling tells you that you were not what you are, she returned. I am. That which promised happiness when we were in one heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I've thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words? No, never. In what, then? In a changed nature in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope at its great end, in everything that made my love any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, said the girl, looking mildly, but with steadiness upon him, tell me, would you seek me out and try and win me now? Ah, oh, no, he seemed to yield to the justice of this supposition in spite of himself. But he said with a struggle, You think not? I would gladly think otherwise if I could, she answered. Heaven knows. When I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday... Can even I believe that you would choose a dourless girl? You who, in your very confidence with her, weigh everything by gain? Or choosing her, if for a moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so? Do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do, and I release you with a full heart for the love of him you once were. He was about to speak, but with her head turned from him, she resumed. You may. The memory of what is past half makes me hope you will. Have pain in this, a very, very brief time, and you will dismiss the recollection of it gladly as an unprofitable dream from which happened well that you awoke but may you be happy in the life you have chosen. She left him, and they departed. Spirit, said Scrooge, show me no more. 
conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? Shadow more. No more, cried Scrooge. No more. I do not wish to see it. Show me no more. But the relentless ghost pinioned him to both his arms and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene and place, a room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near to the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl, so like the last that Scrooge believed it was the same, until he saw her. Now a comely matron sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count. And unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, they were not forty children conducting themselves like one. But every child was conducting itself like forty. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief. But no one seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much. And the latter, soon beginning to mingle in the sports, got pillaged by the young brigands most ruthlessly. What I would not have given to be one of them, though... I would never have been so rude. No, 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 no. I wouldn't for the wealth of all the world have crushed that braided hair and torn it down. And for the precious little shoe, I wouldn't have plucked it off. God bless my soul to save my life. As to measuring her waist and sport as they did, bold young brood, I couldn't have done it. Our knocking at the door was heard. And such a rush immediately ensued that she, with laughing face and plundered dress, was borne towards it to the center of a flushed and boisterous group, just in time to greet the father, who came home attended by a man laden with Christmas toys and presents. Then the shouting and the struggling and the onslaught that was made on the defenseless porter, the scaling him with chairs for ladders to dive into his pockets shouts of wonder and delight with which the development of every package was received, the terrible announcement that the baby had been taken in the act of putting a doll's frying pan into the mouth and was more than suspected of having swallowed a fictitious turkey glued on a wooden platter, the immense relief of finding this a false alarm, the joy and gratitude and ecstasy, they were all indescribable alike. It is enough that, by degrees, the children and their emotions got out of the parlor, and by one stair at a time, up to the top of the house, where they went to bed, and so subsided. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever, when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside. And when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful, as full of promise, might have called him father, and been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life. His sight grew very dim indeed. Bell, said the husband, turning to his wife with a smile, I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. How can I? Tut, I don't know, she added in the same breath, laughing as he laughed. Mr. Scrooge? Mr. Scrooge, it was. I passed his office window, and it was not shut up, and he had a candle inside. I could scarcely help seeing him. His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear, and there he sat alone. 
quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, said Scrooge in a broken voice, remove me from this place. I told you these were shadows of the things that have been, that they are what they are. Do not blame me. Me, Scrooge exclaimed, I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost, and seeing that it looked upon him with a face, in which some strange way there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him, wrestled with it. Leave me, take me back, haunt me no longer. In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle in which the ghost, with no visible resistance on its own part, was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that its light was burning high and bright, and dimly connecting that with its influence over him. He seized the extinguisher cap, and by a sudden action, pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so that the extinguisher covered its whole form, but though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light which streamed from under it, in an unbroken flood upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further, of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cap a parting squeeze in which his hand relaxed, and barely time to reel to bed, before he sank into a heavy sleep. Awakening in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore, and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was once again the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the nick of time, for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention, but finding that he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new specter would draw back, he put them, every one aside, with his own hands, and lying down again, established a sharp lookout all around the bed for he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance, and did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, when the bell struck one, and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light, which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts. As he was powerless to make out what it meant or what it would be, and that was sometimes more apprehensive that he might be at the very moment an interesting case of spontaneous combustion, without having the consolation of knowing it. At last, however, he began to think, as you or I would have thought at first, for it is always the person not unquestionably have done it to, at last, I say, he began to think that the source and the secret of his ghostly light might be in the adjoining room from whence, on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. The idea, taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment 
Scrooge's hand was on the lock. A strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter. He obeyed. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked like a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many, many a winter season gone. Heaped on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and a seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch, in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping around the door. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before this spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet him. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple deep green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observably beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, set here and there with shining circles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded around its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it. The ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. Have you never seen the like of me before? Never. Scrooge made an answer to it have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these later years. I don't think I have, said Scrooge. I am afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers, spirit? More than eighteen hundred. A tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas present rose. Spirit, said Scrooge submissively. Conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, brawn, meat, pigs. 
all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning, where, for the weather was severe, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music, and scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings, and from the tops of their houses, whence it was mad delight to see the boys, to see coming plumping down into the road below, and splitting into artificial little snowstorms. The house fronts looked black enough, and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs, and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposit had been plowed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets, and now and then exchanging a factious snowball, better-natured missile from far on a wordy jest, laughing heartily if it went right and not less heartily if it went wrong. The poulterer's shops were still half open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts, shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen, lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the streets. There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish onions, shining in the fatness of their growth like Spanish friars, and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness as the girls went by, and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. Steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and their gayest faces, and at the same time there emerged, from scores by streets, lanes, and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker's shop. The sight of those poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly. For they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day. And so it was. God love it, so it was. In time, the bells ceased and the bakers were shut up, and yet there was a genial shadowing forth of all these dinners and the progress of their cooking. In the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? asked Scrooge. There is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? asked Scrooge. To any kindly given, to a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? asked Scrooge. Because it needs it most. Spirit, said Scrooge after a moment's thought, I wonder you, of all the things in the many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. I? You would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, said Scrooge, wouldn't you? I? You seek to close the places on the seventh day, said Scrooge, and it comes to the same thing. 
I seek. Forgive me if I am wrong. It has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours who claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill-will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the baker's, that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off his powers, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature and sympathy with all poor men that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks, for there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding to his rope, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with a sprinkling of his torch. Think of that! Bob, who had been but fifteen bob a week himself, he pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of the potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son an air of honor of the day, into his mouth rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now, two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they had smelt the goose and known it for their own, and basking in the luxurious thoughts of sage and onion. These young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies while he, not proud, although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes, bubbling up, knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. "'What has ever got your precious father, then?' said Mrs. Cratchit. "'And your brother, Tiny Tim?' "'And Martha weren't as late last Christmas by half an hour.' "'Here's Martha, mother,' said a girl, appearing as she spoke. "'Here's Martha, mother,' cried the two young Cratchits. "'Hooray! There's such a goose, Martha!' "'Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are!' said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet with her affectionate zeal. We'd a deal of great work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, mother. 
Well, never mind, so long as you are come, said Mrs. Cratchit. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. Lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide! So Martha hid herself and came in little Bob the father with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe, hanging down before him and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? cried Bob Cratchit, looking around. Not coming, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not coming, said Bob, with a sudden declension in his high spirits, for he had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church and had come home rampant. Not coming upon Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were only in joke, so she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms, while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off to the wash house that he might bear the pudding singing in the copper. And now... How did our little Tim behave? asked Mrs. Cratchit. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister, his stool beside the fire, and while Bob, turning up his cuffs, as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons and stirred it round and round, and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course, and in truth, it was something very like that in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their post, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. There was never such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there was ever such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness were the themes of the universal admiration eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes. It was a sufficient dinner for the whole family. Indeed, Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. 
yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should got over the wall of the backyard and stole it while they were merry with the goose. A supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Whew! A great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day, that was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and the pastries cooked next door to each other. With a laundress next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball. Oh, what a wonderful pudding! Bob Cratchit said, and calmly, too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. At last the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, and the fire made up, the compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect. Apples and oranges were put upon the table, and a shovel of full of chestnuts on the fire. Then the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning a half one. And at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. Then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. To which all the family re-echoed, God bless us, every one said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side, upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand to his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before. Tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat. In the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. These shadows remain unaltered by the future. The child will die. Oh, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, if man you be in heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that, in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh, God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling, cast his eyes upon the ground, but he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, said Bob, 
I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed, cried Mrs. Cratchit, reddening. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon. I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, said Bob, the children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, she said, on which one drinks to the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, was Bob's mild answer, Christmas Day. I'll drink his health for your sake and the day's, said Mrs. Cratchit, not for his. Long life to him. A merry Christmas and a happy new year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness in it. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for a full five minutes. They were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed, their shoes were far from being waterproof, their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time, and then, when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By this time it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily, and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires and kitchens, parlors, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. There all the children of the house were running into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, and aunts to be the first to greet them. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about. What is this place? asked Scrooge. Place where miners live who labor in the bowels of the earth. But they know me, see? Light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, with their children and their children's children. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on above the moor sped whither. Not to see. To see? To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by thundering of water, as it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn. But even here, two men who watched the light made a fire that through the loophole in the thick stone wall shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. 
Joining their hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog, and one of them, the elder two, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, as the figure held of old ship might be struck, the ghost sped on above the black and heaving sea, on and on, until being far away, as he told Scrooge, from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood behind the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. But every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companions of some bygone Christmas day. It was a great surprise to Scrooge while listening to the moaning of the wind and thinking of what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secret as profound as death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while thus engaged, to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephews, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room, with the spirit standing smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. Ha, 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 laughed Scrooge's nephew. Ha, ha, ha. If you should happen by any unlikely chance to know a man more blessed in a laugh than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is I should like to know him too. Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed as heartily as he, and their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, roared out lustily. Ha, 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 ha. He said that Christmas was a humbug. As I live, cried Scrooge's nephew, he believed it too. More shame for him, Fred, said Scrooge's niece indignantly. Bless those women. They never do anything by halves. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking capital face. He's a comical old fellow, said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he's very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece. At least, you always tell me so. What of that, my dear, said Scrooge's nephew. His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do anything good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it, he hasn't the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him, observed Scrooge's niece. Scrooge's niece's sisters and all the other ladies expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? himself, always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner, said Scrooge's niece. Oh, I'm very glad to hear it, said Scrooge's nephew, because I haven't any great faith in these young housekeepers. 
What do you say, Topper? Topper had clearly got his eye upon one of Scrooge's niece's sisters, for he answered that a bachelor was a wretched outcast who might no right to express an opinion on the subject. Do go on, Fred, said Scrooge's niece, clasping her hands. He never finishes what he begins to say. He's such a ridiculous fellow. Scrooge's nephew reveled in another laugh, as it was impossible to keep the infection off, though the plump sister tried hard to do it with aromatic vinegar. I was going to say, said Scrooge's nephew, that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. I am sure he loses pleasanter companions than he can find in his own thoughts either in this moldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper, year after year, and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only put him in the vein to leave his poor clerk fifty pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. It was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge. But being thoroughly good-natured and not much caring what they laughed at, so that they laughed at any rate, he encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joyously. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind man buff's party, but was made comfortable with a large chair and a footstool in a snug corner where the ghost and Scrooge were close behind her. But she joined in the forfeits and loved her love to admiration with all the letters of the alphabet. Likewise, at the game of how, when, and where, she was very great, and to the secret joy of Scrooge's nephew, beat her sister's hollow though they were sharp girls too, as Topper could have told you. There might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, for wholly forgetting in the interest that he had what was going on, that his voice made no sound in their ears. He sometimes came out with his guests quite loud, and very often guessed right too. For the sharpest needle, best Whitechapel warranted not to cut in, the eye was not sharper than Scrooge, blunt as he took it in his head to be. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with such favor that he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guests departed. But this the spirit could not be done. It's a new game, said Scrooge. One half-hour spirit, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something and the rest must find out what, he only answering to their questions, yes or no, as the case was. The brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him that he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, rather disagreeable animal, a savage animal and one that growled and grunted sometimes and talked sometimes and lived in London and walked the streets and wasn't made a show of and wasn't led by anybody and didn't live in a menagerie and was never killed in a market 
and was not a horse or an ass or a cow or a tiger or a dog or a cat. At every fresh question that was put to him, the nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to get up off the sofa and stamp. At last, the plump sister, following into a similar state, cried out, I have found it out. I know what it is, Fred. I know what it is. What is it? cried Fred. It's your Uncle Scrooge, which it certainly was. Admiration was the universal sentiment, though some objected that the reply is, is it a bear, ought to have been yes, inasmuch as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted their thoughts from Mr. Scrooge, supposing they had any tendency that way. (laughs) He has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, said Fred, and it would be ungrateful not to drink to his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine ready at our hand at the moment, and I say, Uncle Scrooge! Well, Uncle Scrooge! they cried. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, wherever he is, said Scrooge's nephew. He wouldn't take it from me, but he may have it nevertheless. To Uncle Scrooge! Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an inaudible speech if the ghost had given him time. But the whole scene passed off in the breath of the last word spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw and far they went. It was a long night, if it were only a night, But Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, Ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until they left a children's twelfth night party. When looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that its hair was gray. Are spirits' lives so short? asked Scrooge. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight. Tonight? cried Scrooge. Tonight, at midnight. Hark, the time is drawing near. Forgive me if I am. Not justified in what I ask, said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robe. But I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it. Look here. From the foldings of its robe it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here. Look, look down here. Scrooge started back appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than 
party to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware of them both, and all of their degree. But most of all beware this boy, for on his brow I see that written which is doom. Unless the writing is erased, deny it. Slander those who tell it to thee. Admit it for your fictitious purposes and make it worse, and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? cried Scrooge. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting his eyes beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come, said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Is that so, spirit? asked Scrooge. The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. The spirit paused a moment as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud there were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him, while he, though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. "'Ghost of future!' he exclaimed. "'I fear you more than any specter I have seen!' But, as I know your purpose is good to me, and as I have hoped to live another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear your company and do it with a thankful heart. 
Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, said Scrooge, lead on. The night is waning fast, and it's precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come forwards. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to be springing about them and encompassed them all of its own. But they were in the heart of it. On change amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down and clinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked at their watches and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen, observing that the hand was pointed to them. Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. <laughs> no, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. When did he die? inquired another. Last night, I believe. Why, what's the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. God knows, said the first with a yawn. What has he done with his money? I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me. That's all I know. This pleasantry was received with a general laugh. It's likely to be a very cheap funeral, for upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer? I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, but I must be fed if I make one. Another laugh. Well, I'm the most disinterested among you after all, for I never wear black gloves and I never eat lunch, but I'll offer to go if anybody else will. When I come to think of it, I'm not at all sure that I wasn't his most particular friend, <laughs> for we used to stop and speak whenever we met. Bye-bye. Speakers and listeners strolled away and mixed with other groups. Scrooge knew the men and looked towards the spirit for an explanation. The phantom glided into a street, its finger pointed on two persons meeting. Scrooge listened again that the explanation might lie here. He knew these men also, perfectly. They were men of business, very wealthy and of great importance. He had made a point of always standing well in their esteem in a business point of view, that is, and strictly in a business point of view. How are you? said one. How are you? said the other. Well, said the first one, old Scratch has got his own at last, hey? So I'm told. Cold, isn't it? Seasonable for a Christmas time. You are not a skater, I suppose? No, no. Something else to think of. Good morning. Not another word. That was their meeting, their conversation, and their parting. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to the conversation apparently so trivial. But feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose... He set himself to consider what it was likely to be. They scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, 
for that was the past, and this ghost's province was the future. He looked about in that very place for his own image, but another man stood in his accustomed corner. And though the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. It gave him little surprise, however, for he had been revolving in his mind a change of life, and thought and hoped he saw his newborn resolutions carried out in this. Quiet and dark beside him stood the phantom with its outstretched hand. When he roused himself from his thoughtful quest, he fancied from the turn of the hand and its situation in reference to himself that the unseen eyes were looking at him keenly. Oh, it made him shudder and feel very cold. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of town where Scrooge had never penetrated before. Although he recognized its situation, its bad repute, the ways were foul and narrow, the shop and houses wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshod and ugly. Alleys and archways, like so many cesspools, disgorged their offenses of smell and dirt. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed beetling shop, below a penthouse roof, where iron, old rags, bottles, and greasy offal were bought. Upon the floor, within their piled heaps of rusty keys, nails, and chains, and refuse of all kinds of iron. And among the wares he dealt in, by a charcoal stove made of old bricks, was a gray-haired rascal, nearly seventy years of age, who had screened himself from the cold air without by a frowsy curtaining of miscellaneous tatters hung upon a line, and smoked his pipe in all the luxury of calm retirement. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunked into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into laughter. <laughs> Let the charwoman alone be the first, cried she who had entered first. Let the laundress alone be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone be the third. Look here, old joy, here's a chance. If we haven't all three met here without meaning it, "'You couldn't have met in a better place,' said old Joe, removing his pipe from his mouth. "'Come into the parlor. You made free of it long ago, you know, and the two others ain't strangers. Stop till I shut the door of the shop. Oh, how it shrieks. Come into the parlor. Come into the parlor.' The parlor was the space behind the screen of rags. The old man raked the fire together with an old stair rod, and having trimmed his smoky lamp with the stem of his pipe, put it into his mouth again. "'What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dibbler?' said the woman. "'Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did.' <laughs> "'That's true. No more so.' 
Why then, don't stand staring as if you were afraid. Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. <laughs> no, indeed, we should hope not. Very well, that's enough. Who's the worse for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. <laughs> no, no, indeed, said Mrs. Diddler, laughing. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, wicked old screw, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him after he was struck with death, instead of lying, gasping out his last there, alone, all by himself. <laughs> That's the truest word that was ever spoken. It's a judgment on him. I wish it was a judgment that was a little heavier. It should have been. You may depend upon it. If I had been laid my hands on anything else, open that old bundle, Joe, and let me know the value of it. Miss Dibbler was next. Sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver spoons. Joe went down on his knees for the greater convenience of opening everything, and having unfastened a great many knots, dragged out a large, heavy roll of some dark stuff. Bed curtains? <laughs> returned the woman, laughing and leaning forward. Bed curtains! You don't mean to say you took them down, rings and all, with him lying there, said Joe. <laughs> yes, I do. Why not? You were born to make a fortune, and you certainly will. His blankets? asked Joe. Who else do you think? He isn't likely to take cold with them, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of anything catching, said old Joe, stopping in his work and looking up. Don't be afraid of that. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such a thing if he did. This is the end of it. You see? He frightened everyone away from him when he was alive to profit us when he was dead. <laughs> Spirit, said Scrooge, shuddering from head to foot. I see, I see. This case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror. The scene had changed, and now he almost touched a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed on which beneath a ragged sheet there lay something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark, to be observed with any accuracy. Though Scrooge glanced around it in obedience, a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced towards the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest rising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it 
felt how easy it would be to do it and longed to do it, but he had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the specter at his side. Irrit, he said, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me, let us go. Still, the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, Scrooge returned, and I would do it if I could, but I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. Again, it seemed to look upon him. If there is any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, said Scrooge, quite agonized, show that spirit to me. I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment, like a wing, and withdrawing it revealed a room by daylight where a mother and her children were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room. At length, the long-expected knock was heard. She hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. There was a remarkable expression in it now, a kind of serious delight of which he felt ashamed and which he struggled to repress. He sat down to the dinner that had been hoarding for him by the fire, and when she asked him faintly what news, which was not until after a long silence, he appeared embarrassed how to answer. Is it good, she said, or bad to help him? Bad, he answered. Are we quite ruined? No. There is hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, she said, amazed. There is. Nothing is past hope if such a miracle has happened. He is past relenting, said her husband. He is dead. She was a mild, impatient creature. Her face spoke truth, but she was thankful in her soul to hear it, and she said so with clasped hands. She prayed forgiveness the next moment and was sorry, but the first was the emotion of her heart, the only emotion that the ghost could show him of the caused by the event was one of pleasure. Let me see some tenderness connected with a death, said Scrooge or that dark chamber spirit. We just left now will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself. But nowhere was he to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and children seated around the fire. Quiet. Very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner and sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and her daughters were engaged in sewing. But surely they were very quiet. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. Where had Scrooge heard those words before? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out as he and the spirit crossed the threshold. Why did he not go on? 
The mother laid her work on the table and put her hand up to her face. Oh, the color hurts my eyes, she said. The color? Oh, poor tiny Tim. Oh, they are they are better now again, said Cratchit's wife. It makes them weak by candlelight, but I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father when he comes home for the world. It'd be near his time. Past it, Peter said, but I think he has walked a little slower than he used to. These, these few last evenings, mother. They were very quiet again. At last, she said, and in a steady, cheerful voice that only faltered once. I have known him walk with, I've known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder, very fast indeed. And so have I, cried Peter, often. And so have I, exclaimed another, so had all. But he was very light to carry, she resumed, intent upon her work. And his father loved him so that it was no trouble, no trouble. Oh, there's your father at the door. She hurried out to meet him, and little Bob and his comforter, he had need of it, poor fellow, came in. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they all tried who should help him to the most. Then the two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid each child a little cheek against his face as if they said, Don't mind it, father, don't be grieved. Bob was very cheerful with him and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at the work upon the table and praised the industry and speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the girls. They would be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday? You went today then, Robert? said his wife. Yes, my dear, returned Bob. I wish you could have gone. I, I would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on Sunday. My little, little child, cried Bob. My little child. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. If he could have helped it, he and his child would have been further apart, perhaps, than they were. He left the room and went upstairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with Christmas. There was a chair set close beside the child, and there were signs of someone having been there lately. Poor Bob sat down in it, and when he thought a little and posed himself, he kissed the little face. He was reconciled to what had happened and went down again quite happy. They drew about the fire and talked, and the girls and the mother still working. Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew, whom he had scarcely seen but once, and who, meeting him in the street that day and seeing that he looked just a little down, you know, said Bob, inquired what had happened to distress him. On which, said Bob, for he is the pleasantest spoken gentleman you ever heard. I am heartily sorry for you, Mr. Cratchit, he said, and heartily sorry for your good wife. By the by, how he ever knew that, I don't know. Knew what, my dear? Why, that you were a good wife, 
replied Bob. Everybody knows that, said Peter. Very well observed, my boy, cried Bob. I hope they do. Heartily sorry, he said, for your good wife. If I can be of service to you in any way, he said, giving me his card, that's where I live. Pray come to me. Now it wasn't, cried Bob, for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us, so much as for his kind way, that this was quite delightful. He really seemed as if he had known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I'm sure he's a good soul, said Mrs. Cratchit. You would be sure of it, my dear, if you saw and spoke to him. I shouldn't be surprised at all. Mark what I say, if he got Peter a better situation. Only hear that, Peter, said Mrs. Cratchit. I am very happy, said little Bob. I am very happy. Mrs. Cratchit kissed him and his daughters kissed him. The two young Cratchits kissed him and Peter and himself shook hands. Spirit of Tiny Tim, the childish essence was from God. Spectre, said Scrooge, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me what man that was whom was lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before. Though at a different time, he thought, indeed there seemed no order in these little visions save that they were in the future. This court, said Scrooge, through which we hurry now, is where my place of occupation is, and has been for a length of time. I see the house, let me behold what I shall in days to come. The spirit stopped. The hand was pointed elsewhere. The house is yonder, Scrooge explained. Why do you point that way? The inexorable finger underwent no change. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office, looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same. The figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again, and wondering why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look around before entering. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying the fat with repleted appetite, a worthy place. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced towards it, trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw a new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I, I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they the shadows of the things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will be changed. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. 
Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name. Ebenezer Scrooge. <gasps> Am I the man that lay upon the bed? He cried upon his knees. The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit, no. The finger was still there. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at its robe. Hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been for this intercourse. Why show me this if, if I am past hope? For the first time the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, he pursued as down upon the ground he fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me, pities me. Assure me that I may change these shadows that you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart. I will try to keep it all year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach me. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit grew stronger, repulsed him. Holding up his hand in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own, the room was his own, best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own, to make amends. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Scrooge repeated as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. He was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions that his broken voice could scarcely answer to his call. He had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit, and his face was wet with tears. They are not torn down, cried Scrooge, holding one of his bed curtains in his arms. They are not torn down, rings and all. They are here. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. His hands were busy with his garments all this time, turning them inside out, putting them on upside down, tearing them, mislaying them, making them parties to every kind of extravagance. I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath and making a perfect lunatic of himself with his stockings. I am light as a feather. I am happy as an angel. I am merry as a schoolboy and giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everyone. A happy new year to the world. Hello, hello. He had frisked into the sitting room and was now standing there, perfectly winded. 
there's the saucepan that the gruel was in, cried Scrooge, starting off again and going around the fireplace. Ho, 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 I was wandering with spirits. It's all right. It's all true. It all happened. Really, for a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was splendid laugh, a most illustrious laugh, the father of a long line of brilliant laughs. I don't know what day of the month it is, said Scrooge. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. <laughs> Never mind, I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello, hello. He was checked in his transport by the churches, ringing out the lustiest peals he had ever heard. Clash, clash, hammer, ding, dong, bell, ding, dong, clash. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist, clear, bright, jovial, stirring and cold, cold piping for the blood to dance, golden sunlight. Oh, glorious. What's today? cried Scrooge, calling downward to a boy in Sunday clothes who had perhaps loitered to look about him. Huh? returned the boy with all his might of wonder. What's today, my fine fellow? said Scrooge. Today? replied the boy. Why, it's Christmas Day. Christmas Day, said Scrooge to himself. I haven't missed it. Spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, returned the boy. Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I did, replied the lad. An intelligent boy, a remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey, the big one. What, the one as big as me? returned the boy. Oh, what a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now, replied the boy. Is it? Go and buy it. Wah, ah, ah, exclaimed the boy. No, no, I am in earnest to go and buy it and tell them to bring it here, that I may give them the directions where to take it. Come back with the man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. He must have had a steady hand at a trigger who could have got a shot off as half as fast. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit, whispered Scrooge, rubbing his hands and splitting with a laugh. He shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a dope as sending it to Bob's will be. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did somehow, and went downstairs to open the street door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's man. As he stood there, waiting his arrival, the knocker caught his eye. "'I shall love it as long as I live,' cried Scrooge, patting it with his hand. "'I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has in its face. It's a wonderful knocker. <gasps> Here's the turkey! How are you? Merry Christmas! It was a turkey. 
He never could have stood upon his legs, that bird. He would have snapped him short off in a minute like sticks of a ceiling wax. Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town. You must have a cab, said Scrooge. The chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again, and chuckled till he cried. Shaving was not an easy task, for his hand continued to shake very much, and shaving requires attention, even when you don't dance while you're at it. Dressed himself all in his best, and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth, and he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present. And walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded every one with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant in a word that three or four good-humored fellows said, Good morning, sir. A Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge said often afterwards that all the blithe sounds he had ever heard, those were the blithiest in his ears. He had not gone far when, coming on towards him, he beheld the portly gentleman who had walked into his counting-house the day before, and said, Scrooge and Marley, I believe. It sent a pang across his heart to think how this old gentleman would look upon him when they met. But he knew what path lay straight before him, and he took it. My dear sir, said Scrooge, quickening his pace, taking the old gentleman by both hands, how do you do, I... I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was a very kind of you. It was Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Scrooge? Yes, said Scrooge. That is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon, and will you have the goodness? Here Scrooge whispered in his ear. Lord, bless me, cried the gentleman, as if his breath had been taken away. My dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? If you please, said Scrooge, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. Will you do me that favor? My dear sir, said the other man, shaking hands with him, I don't know what to say to such a munif- Don't say anything, please, retorted Scrooge. Come and see me. We, will you come and see me? I will, cried the old gentleman, and it was clear he meant it. Thank you. I am much obliged. I thank you fifty times. Bless you. He went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted the children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything, could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. But he made a dash of it and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? said Scrooge to the girl. Nice girl, very. Yes, sir. Where is he, my love? said Scrooge. He's in the dining room, sir, along with the mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please. Thank you. He knows me, said Scrooge, with his hand already on the dining room lock. I'll go in here, my dear. 
He turned it gently and sidled his face in around the door. They were looking at the table, which was spread with a great array. For these young housekeepers are always nervous on such points and like to see everything is right. Fred, said Scrooge, dear heart alive, how his niece by marriage started. Scrooge had forgotten for the moment about her sitting in the corner with the footstool, or he wouldn't have done it on any account. Why, bless my soul, cried Fred, who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same. So did Topper when he came. So did the plump sister when she came. So did everyone when they came. Wonderful party and wonderful games. Wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office the next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was a full eighteen minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him when he come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice, as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir, said Bob. I am behind my time. You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir, pleaded Bob, appearing from the tank. It shall not be repeated. I, I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge. I am not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, he continued, leaping from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again. And therefore, I'm about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help in a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnestness that could not be mistaken as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family. We will discuss your affairs this afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop, Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another. Ah, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city town or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them. 
for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes and grins as the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards, and it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, every one. Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. And Merry Christmas. Sleep well.